The scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. It can be found on page 744 in the Black Bibles. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Emily and Michael. Um, I, I'm not sure whose idea it was to preach on Daniel chapter 7 on Easter Sunday, but that person may get fired now. It was actually me, and it really does. It, it, it fits. It's a little bit uh, different from your normal Easter fair, uh, but uh, we will uh, look into this passage and ask the Lord to help us as we, as we dive in. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for its power. We pray that on this day when we celebrate your resurrection from the dead and look forward to your coming again, you would meet with us and work transformatively in our hearts and in our lives. We ask it in the name of our risen Savior and King Jesus. Amen. Redemption. That was the word. It was in all caps, bold, and there was an exclamation, an exclamation point at the end of it. It was on a Tuesday, April the 9th, that I was looking at the front page of the Sports Illustrated website. And the word said, redemption. And it said redemption because just the night before, on Monday, April the 8th, the University of Virginia had just won the NCAA basketball championship. And it was redemption, according to that article, because having, they, were, they had come back that year, having been the first team the year before to be a number one seed in the tournament to lose to a 16th seeded team. And so the next year they came back and they won. And so the word was redemption. Redemption. 
That was a word I heard probably a hundred times just a week ago when Tiger Woods came back from two strokes down in the Masters to win the green jacket, a, a title he had not won since 2005. And Jim Nance on CBS must have said the word a hundred times. Redemption for Tiger Woods. After his victory, there was a story on a website that said, Tiger Woods, a redemption story. Now what is it about these events in the world of sports that stir people to use such a powerful word like redemption to describe them? I mean, truth be told, these aren't really redemptive events, are they? Redemption is being rescued from a predicament that you can do nothing about. Redemption is needing someone that is outside of you to enter in to pull you out of whatever your circumstance is. And as awesome as it was that the University of Virginia came back this year to win the championship, particularly because I picked them last year and this year, it's still not redemption. And even though it looked like Tiger Woods' career might have been over and frankly his life in complete shambles from injuries and self-inflicted wounds, he didn't redeem anything when he won a golf tournament. So why that word? Why that big word? I suspect that it is because there is something in our hearts as human beings that longs for redemption. There is a hope in us, on the surface for some of us, uh, buried deep inside for others enough to, uh, of us. There, there, there's a hope that things are going to get better, that things have to get better. There is a hope in us that everything that we see in front of our eyes and in our lives is not the end of the story. And that's why we use the word redemption in places where it doesn't fit. Because we want it so badly. We want redemption to be possible. We want the story of our lives. We want the story of the world to get better. Easter is a story about redemption in its fullest and its most profound and incredible sense. Easter is about running to the tomb, looking inside and seeing nothing in there but folded grave clothes. Easter is realizing all of a sudden that what looked to be a crushing and humiliating, frankly, defeat is actually a great victory. And it's not just a victory in a basketball game or in a golf tournament. It's the ultimate victory over sin and death, and eternal separation from God. Easter, as strange as it sounds, actually lies at the heart of what we just read in Daniel chapter 7, this cosmic battle. See, Daniel chapter 7, the second part of it at least, is about a cosmic war at some point in the undefined future. A war that rages outside of us and a war that rages behind the veil of what we can see with our eyes but has ramifications with respect to what we experience in this world. 
Last week we went into a lot of detail about the background of this chapter and the content of Daniel's vision. So if you're interested and you weren't here, you can listen to that sermon from last week. But this morning I want us to see three things in the second part of Daniel 7 by way of encouragement. First, the one who fights. Second, the apparent defeat. And third, the resounding victory. The one who fights, the apparent defeat, and the resounding victory. So first of all, the one who fights. In verse 9 of Daniel 7, the scene changes from this vision that he has been describing of these four great beasts, which we talked about last week as both representative of four historical kingdoms in the world, but also ongoing manifestations of the human quest for ultimate power and ultimate dominion in the world. Now, uh, the, the scene changes from these beasts to the ultimate judgment of evil by God. Now, God is seen here as the great judge between good and evil. He is the ancient of days, as the text said. This passage actually may be the reason why some people, when they think about God in their minds, think about an old man you know, with white hair and a white beard that sits on a throne. But that is not what this passage is about. His clothing, his hair, the throne, the court that surround him, they all signify his absolute holiness, his absolute purity, his power. But then there's another who appears in this vision. Verse 13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now there are a couple of extremely important things to notice in this one snippet of a verse. First is about the clouds. The second is about the one who's coming on the clouds. The one like a son of man is seen in this vision riding in on the clouds of heaven. What's significant about that? Well, this is actually an activity that the Bible in the Old Testament particularly attributes to God alone. God appeared to the people of Israel as they walked toward the promised land as a pillar of cloud by day. When Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of God, the cloud came down and enveloped him. When the tabernacle was erected and the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, the cloud settled there signifying the presence of of God in Psalm 104, a psalm expressing praise to the power and majesty of God, the psalmist says, He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. God alone rides on the clouds. Yet here, who comes riding into this cosmic battle but one like a son of man? Now in the Old Testament, these words son of man is very often used simply to signify a human being, one who is not God, like Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? But here the son of man is depicted as doing something that only God does, riding into this battle on the clouds. And it goes further than this. In the New Testament, 
Jesus takes this descriptive phrase, son of man, and he applies it to himself. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus uses the phrase son of man around 30 times as a self-designation. What is he saying by that? Is he, is he only calling himself a human being? He's not doing that. He's actually hearkening us and the people that heard him and the people that read those words, he's hearkening us, us back to passages just like this one. You know, it's often claimed, and maybe you've heard this before, it's very often claimed that Jesus, when he was actually living on this earth, never made claims of deity. He never claimed to be God. If you ever took a, a religion class at like a secular liberal arts college or a state university, that's what you would have been taught. You would have been taught that the church, three centuries after the death of Jesus, because Constantine, the emperor, needed to solidify his political power around Christianity, and he needed something about Jesus that would solidify that power, that they made up the deity of Christ three centuries after Jesus. If you've ever watched The Da Vinci Code or you've ever read that book, that is central to that story, that Jesus never claimed to be divine, but the church, three centuries later, made it up because they needed something to rally around. But this is simply not true historically. In the Gospel of John, Jesus used the designation for himself, I am, on a number of occasions. And in one occasion, he used it in a way that at least the religious leaders of, of, of Israel knew what he was saying, because once he said it, they picked up rocks and they were going to stone him for blasphemy. He was claiming deity. But also, when he keeps referring to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, he is, he is hearkening us back to passages like this one, where one like a Son of Man does things that only God can do. So there are explicit claims of deity in the New Testament, like in the Gospel of John, but there are also implicit claims of deity in the New Testament, like this one. Places where Jesus references us back to one who is like a son of man who does only what God can do. Ride in on the clouds to fight a cosmic battle. Only Jesus is the son of man and also the son of God. That is the claim that the Bible makes regarding who Jesus is fully God and fully man, the one who came down from heaven to fight sin and death. But there's more to the story. So second, we see the apparent defeat. This past Monday, if you were anything like me, I'm sure a lot of you were staring at your television or staring at your computer screen, watching the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris burn. If you had ever been there before and visited that place, maybe you took a picture outside of it with your family, maybe you posted a picture of your family or yourself standing in front of there to remember it when it stood. 
it felt really weighty to me. I don't know how it felt to you, but it felt really weighty to me to watch those images. A structure that stood for nearly a thousand years. And almost all of those a thousand years, they didn't use light bulbs to light it. They used candles and fire and other things. And it survived plagues and wars and the Nazi occupation and Hitler wanting to tear it down just to burn down in front of the eyes of the world on the internet. The most poignant and heartbreaking moment was to see that giant spire that stood and towered over Notre Dame collapse under its own weight because its support beams had burned. And then immediately, of course, there were the internet trolls, you know, that, that, that tried to prophesy why Notre Dame burned. You know, like, this is what you get, Paris, for being secular. You know, this is what you get for rejecting Christianity and being one of the world's most secular countries, that kind of thing, which people shouldn't do because God never really tells people why he does things like that. But even though we have none of that information, it did feel weighty, like a defeat, right? It felt like like something important was lost. This monument that stood in the heart of a city beckoning people who passed it to look up, to consider the transcendent, to maybe think about God for just a second of their lives and maybe wonder, what's that thing, what is this church doing here for a thousand years? Could this possibly be true? To be burned down, to be defeated. That's what the followers of Jesus were thinking on the day that he was crucified and they all ran away in fear because they thought they were next and then he was buried. They were thinking, what a crushing defeat. What a crushing defeat. They didn't understand it. It, it. To them it was not supposed to be this way. But of course it was supposed to be this way. Jesus had spent three years trying to tell them that it was supposed to be this way. That the Son of Man would suffer death. But they didn't believe them. To, they didn't believe him. To, to them it was just a crushing defeat. You can resonate with this in your own life, can't you? Sometimes things happen in the world. Like followers of Jesus gathering together to celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka only to be bombed and killed. Some things, sometimes things happen in your own life and in the lives of other people that, that you love that make you say, this was not supposed to happen. It was not supposed to be like this. What a defeat. It could be a miscarriage after years of trying to get pregnant. It could be getting laid off of a job for no fault of your own simply because other people who control everything make decisions that affect you. It could be hearing the news of a debilitating and a terminal disease. It could be a rebellious child or a severed relationship or a sudden accident. And when these things happen, and they do happen, we're often tempted to think one of two things. Some people experience those things and say, that's it. That's it. God cannot be real. If God were real, either these things would stop or they would not happen in the first place. Or sometimes we experience those things and we say, God, I think you're there, but are you weak? Are you losing? I mean, is Satan winning? Like, what is happening here? Can I trust you? 
Well, there's encouragement here from the Bible. Because the Bible is unflinching in its presentation of the truth. That's one of the reasons why I believe it to be true. It is unflinching in its view of reality. And that truth is that there is a cosmic battle that is raging behind the veil of what we can see. And that it sometimes appears as if evil and destruction and death are going to come out on top. Daniel 7, in part of the passage that we didn't read this morning, if you were to continue on, talks about this. In verse 21, one of the powerful horns that was on the head of the force beast, it says, waged war against the saints and prevailed over them. Verses 24 and 25 talk about some amount of time where there is an apparent victory of evil and the apparent uh, defeat of the purposes of God. What you and I experience in this world are the tangible, visible results, very often, of this cosmic battle playing out away from what we can see. You see, when sin entered the world through the rebellion of our first parents in the Garden of Eden, death came with it. Physical death, yes, but also spiritual death, separation, a severed relationship from God that we can do absolutely nothing about on our own. And that is why Jesus, the one who fights, suffered an apparent defeat. Because in going to the cross, in what looked like a great victory for Satan, Jesus knew that that was actually the only path to defeat him. Because if you place your trust in Jesus Christ alone, his sacrifice on the cross fully applies to you. In his death, you have life. And that leads us to the resounding victory. Easter is the celebration of the fact that death does not have the final word. And it's not just a cultural celebration of spring and new life sprouting out of the dead of winter. It's not that at all. It is based upon an historical event that, if it is true, changes absolutely everything. It has to. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day. Because the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, his bodily, physical resurrection validates his power to defeat sin and death. It had to happen. Despite what, happened, what, what you read, every op-ed in the New York Times on Easter says that the resurrection is not important. That Christianity is about a message that supersedes the resurrection. Do you know what? The resurrection is important. If Jesus did not rise again from the grave, we are all wasting our time. As the Apostle Paul says, we are of most of all people to be the most pitied. It does matter. It validates the power of the cross to grant you forgiveness and new life in Christ. It validates God's ultimate victory over evil, destruction, and death. And your victory right alongside him if you are united by faith to Jesus Christ. The one who fights and wins. You see, the, the heart of Daniel 7 is the future victory of God over all evil, over all wickedness, all sin. And even death itself through the power of Jesus who is validated as Savior and Lord 
through his resurrection from the dead on the third day. That is why in verse 14, it is the Son of Man who receives dominion and glory. Where all people, nations, and languages bow down to him in words that are repeated, by the way, in Revelation chapter 5, when he does return, when he comes again to secure that victory. Easter and the future ultimate victory of Jesus, they offer us a challenge and a hope. The challenge is to carefully consider the claims of Christ. Is he son of God and son of man? Did he really rise again from the grave on that first Easter? If so, it transforms everything. Has his resurrection transformed you? By bowing your knee to him, receiving him by faith as Savior and Lord. But Easter also offers hope. This world and our lives will have many hardships. It will be hard to live here. Satan is tied up by Jesus, but he is still thrashing around, trying to do as much damage to God's purposes and people as he possibly can. But his defeat is certain. It will happen. It will happen when Jesus rides in on the clouds and casts him into the outer darkness where death will be no more and there will only be life, eternal and abundant life for all who trust in him. That hope, that hope is what helps you persevere. That hope is what helps you to to, to walk faithfully in this world even in the midst of of all the hardships and all the difficulties, to trust God even when you can't really see very far in front of your face and when it's hard to do so. There's a powerful scene in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Frodo Baggins and his friends who are carrying the ring and trying to destroy it in the fire of Mordor, they're, they're, they're scrambling around in deep underground in the mines of Moria. And it's been hard there. I mean, they've been, uh, they've been fighting the orcs and it's been rough. But they think that they have found a way out. But just as they are making their way out of that mine, what arises but the great and terrible monster that lurks way, way down in the dark depths of the mines. It is a balrog, which is a big fiery beast. It has like a, a whip of fire that it uses to fight against its enemies. Gandalf, the gray, the great wizard, is the one who stands between the Balrog and all of his friends to fight. And fight he does. He fights hard. In fact, he fights so hard that there is a point where he wins and he sends the Balrog off of the cliff and into the abyss and is going down to his death But the Balrog has one last gasp left in him and cracks his whip one last time and just barely wraps it around Gandalf's ankle. And so as he falls, he pulls Gandalf the wizard off with him into the abyss. The one who was wise, the one who was strong, the one who knew the way to go, the one who always protected his friends was gone. And they were left alone. 
But unbeknownst to, to anyone, Gandalf continued that fight with the Balrog as they were falling, and ultimately he emerged victorious, but he was also changed. Gandalf the Grey was no more. He had died. He was now Gandalf the White, stronger and more powerful than ever. And when he finally showed back up to the group, it was Sam Gamgee the Hobbit who saw him first and said, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Does this mean that everything sad is going to come untrue? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who fights sin, death, evil, means that when he comes back, everything that is sad will come untrue. Death itself will be no more. And there will only be life and life everlasting trust in him the one who lived the one who died the one who rose again on the third day and live let's pray together lord jesus we are those with all people all over the world every people tribe nation and language under heaven who sing praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to you our risen savior and our king We pray, Father, that that truth would be before our eyes and in our hearts all the days of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.